is a podcast for functional ecology at British Ecological Society publication. Hi everyone, today I'm delighted to welcome two guests, Samuel Ross and Darren O'Connell, to our podcast today. Sam and Darren are co-authors on a recently published review article in Functional Ecology titled Passive Acoustic Monitoring Provides a Fresh Perspective on Fundamental Ecological Questions. So currently, Sam is a postdoc in the Integrative Community Ecology Unit at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology Graduate University in Okinawa, Japan. And Sam is looking to address fundamental and applied questions concerning ecological responses to global change. Sam integrates theory and data analyses, freshwater mesocosm experiments, and passive acoustic monitoring of terrestrial soundscapes. Darren is currently a Irish Research Council postdoctoral fellow at the School of Biology and Environmental Science at the University College of Dublin, Ireland. And he is working on ecological genomics and biogeography of solitary bees. So. I've got it down here, guys, that collectively you've authored over 40 papers. Now, it's been six months since, so maybe you can tell me whether there's there's any additional papers to add on to that. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I think we're I imagine so. probably pushing 50 now. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Seasoned. Seasoned in the game. Look at you guys. Yeah, in visions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Passionate so, in the game. <laughs> so perhaps we'll just kick off doing some introductions so we'll start with sam um if you could just tell us a little bit about who you are um and where you're from and what your research interests are uh thanks for having me on i'm i'm sam ross i'm originally from nottingham in the uk uh did my phd in trinity college dublin in ireland and then uh yeah i'm now a, a postdoc in in japan um uh, my research interests broadly concern um, ecological stability and resilience, how uh, communities uh, change through time and how um, species and ecosystems respond to disturbance. Um, so any kind of like these big pressing kind of global change questions like urbanization, climate change, this kind of stuff, how is that impacting um, our ecosystems through time? Um, and yeah, part of part of that work involves um, some acoustic monitoring. So um, that is is a field that I got into completely by chance um, when I uh, first came to uh, uh, the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology, uh, OIST OIST. Uh, in 2016, I came here for an internship, and uh, I think it was originally meant to be working on some ant data and the data wasn't quite ready or something. And so um, they said, oh, but we do have this new project being set up on acoustics. And I said, you know, I, I don't know anything about this, but sure, count me in. And now, uh, you know, six years or so later, I'm still doing it. So I guess that was a either a good or a bad choice, depending on how you look at things. So. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, and I'll pass the ball to Darren. I'm from Dublin originally, and uh, I'm back working there now. I did my PhD in Dublin too, in uh, Trinity College Dublin with Sam, where we know each other from. I did uh, postdoc in the UK in uh, Newcastle University, and then was kind of bounced back to Dublin to University College Dublin, did a large university there, and. Broadly, I'd say I'm a biodiversity scientist and I'm interested in the where biodiversity is concentrated and why and the factors that help sustain it. And 
for my so in within that sphere I've kind of worked on a few different things uh, I started off with a really fundamental bird biogeography work and speciation work in the Indo-Pacific for my PhD in my postdocs I got a bit more applied looking at um, restoration strategies and how that affected um, biodiversity, community connectivity, uh, and then also how stresses in the landscape affects uh, key uh, species like pollinators. And then I'm kind of, uh, I've told myself and my uh, funders that I'm wrapping it all together in my new fellowship, you know, bringing the fundamental and the applied together, looking at a key group in, in space and time. Uh, and how both geography and stressors impact it. And uh, for the eco-acoustic work that I've collaborated with Sam on, I think I am always looking for new interesting tools which can provide insight into these sort of fundamental um, e ecological or evolutionary questions. I think I'm always kind of at that intersection with ecology and evolution. Usually I've used various molecular tools and done a lot of work with different aspects of genetics and genomics, but uh, Sam was working on uh, bioacoustics and ecoacoustics during our PhD days. I found it really exciting and it was really cool uh, and tool which gave you the ability to do things that I couldn't necessarily do in terms of monitoring communities uh, at the time with genetic tools and yeah we collaborated on a couple of projects and we just kind of started spitballing ideas for this review paper and i found it really really interesting and something i'll definitely take forward and uh just a quite dynamic field which i think is going to make a major contribution mm -hmm. fantastic thank you for that so um there's a few things I wanted to pick up on with what you guys were talking about. But first of all, I'd like us to sort of turn the clocks back and um, just discuss sort of where that initial love for ecology came from. So Darren, I don't know, you know, being Dublin, is it is it Wick, Wicklow or, you know, down in Hoth? What's what's the story? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I'm from Bang in the city centre, so there wasn't a huge many greenery necessarily. But my, both my parents are from the west of Ireland, so I would have spent a lot of summers in uh, the southwest of Kerry, uh, which is probably one of our more mountainous and isolated parts of the country. My father grew up on the side of a mountain, the last house on this windy little road, uh, which was, yeah, it was cool. Uh, I spent a lot of time down there with my grandparents. And um, I don't know, I think uh, I just got um, converted by David Attenborough documentaries as much as anything as well. And uh, I remember from, well, I think when I was six, when I was asked what I was going to be, uh, it was a farmer. Uh, I don't think I really appreciate the, the, the need for lands that wasn't quite available to me. But uh, And then when I was more seriously asked it when I was like 11 or 12, it was zoologists. I think mm -hmm. um, David Amber institutionalized me into this love of the natural natural world, which is still there. Um, uh, those sort of early, you know, Planet Earth documentaries just really inspiring. I feel quite lucky that I've had a chance to get out there and um, study the world's biodiversity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Fantastic. And uh, Sam? Uh, yeah, for me, I, I think, so, I mean, David Attenborough, of course, um, but actually, for me, 
possibly more so with Steve Irwin. No, uh, I, yeah. <laughs> Uh, which is funny because if anyone knows knows me, I'm not the type to go out wrestling crocodiles. But um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, growing up again, I was I was kind of yeah city centre kind of life, uh, and occasionally you know we'd go to. I mean, I'm from Nottingham, so we'd, Sherwood Forest is nearby. There's, you know, there are nice green spaces around. Um, but yeah, it was mainly kind of through TV that I I got kind of a love of of kind of wildlife and and things beyond what's on our doorstep you know uh mm-hmm. and then yeah at one stage i i got in my head the idea i was going to be a field biologist uh, i was saying that from a surprisingly young age before i knew what field biologist actually was <laughs> um and then eventually i did my first actual field work and and decided i wasn't actually really cut out for that um and so i've spent most of my time since at a desk um doing kind of desk-based ecology but um I find the acoustic stuff to be a good mix of the two. You can do, you can go out in the field, but not have to do some of the more labor intensive parts of the field work. So it is actually quite a nice uh, kind of middle ground, I think sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you. So um, the thing I wanted to pick up on, um, which is really interesting, I think is that I think with Darren, um, you know, growing up in Dublin and then studied birds in the Pacific and Sam growing up in Nottingham and you're doing ostensibly ant ecology in Okinawa <laughs> that turns into bioacoustics um you know I think that's a really interesting it's is that kind of drive to to look further afield and not and beyond you know what your initial horizons is that something that was both really important for you in the work that you do Darren's given me a little head <laughs> maybe uh, so it's, yeah I think so. I always wanted to to do something where I could travel. And mm-hmm. I think getting into working in zoology, biodiversity, science, botany, there's just a lot more in the tropics. Obviously, they still have um, fairly functional ecosystems where there's a lot happening. Now, like when you come to Ireland or Britain, they've fairly degraded ecosystems. But what I would say is that having, I think it was a great introduction, kind of, kind of starting as a tropical biologist almost, um, and it, because it got me really excited about stuff, but uh, I now have gotten um, a lot more excited about the biodiversity closer to home. I think it kind of opened my eyes to what actually was there as well, particularly as I w- started working more with insects. I'm like, geez, there is really, there's a lot going on. <laughs> the, even, uh, even in urban environments in Britain or Ireland. Um, yeah, so I think... Again, it's probably the Attenborough stuff and then the Darwin Envy or whatever. I wanted to get out there and explore and look at interesting biodiversity all over the world, um, and which was amazing. But then I suppose my work increasingly has actually come closer to home, I think, uh, once I got, I got that travel bug a bit more itched and, and uh, kind of have a greater appreciation for, for biodiversity all over the place. And Sam, what about you? Was that something, you know, the the travel and being able to go to faraway lands, you know? Yeah, I mean, I would say it maybe wasn't necessarily a very deliberate choice. Um, mm-hmm. Well, so, OK, that's not entirely true. So one, one part of it actually was a very deliberate choice in that I decided not to do my PhD in the UK after Brexit. Um, wow. So okay. I... I decided to go to Ireland where I thought there would be more funding because of the EU. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, 
after then the move to Japan was more of a kind of yeah more of a kind of travel bug I guess and a, a, you know I've always been fascinated with Japan and and really love uh, the country and so it was more of a kind of yeah a move for I guess personal reasons rather than for the research opportunities but now that I'm here I'm very happy that I'm studying local biodiversity here which just happens to then be of course like Okinawan birds and insects and, and things yeah mm-hmm. fantastic um so just before we sort of dive into the paper and we've got a really interesting recording that Sam I think is going to talk us through um I think being the well-traveled ecologist that you guys are um I'd like to ask well I always ask all of our guests can you give me a favorite study organism but also a favorite study site somewhere where you've been and just give us a description of what it was like there um you know you might be talking to people that have absolutely no idea what these places are like we had um a lady a few weeks ago who was talking about um tasmania and obviously me no idea and it was really interesting to find out what that kind of ecosystem was like so um start with sam if you could give us a we'll do we'll do it in order so we'll do favorite organism run through that and then we'll run back into study site okay favorite organism i mean so one of the one of my favorite birds that we get in our um audio recordings in okinawa is the um it's called the ruddy kingfisher it's a it's a big red kingfisher and i I mean they're quite rare but i've seen maybe four or five over the years um sometimes we even get them on the university campus actually but um yeah they've got this really uh impressive and and kind of melodic sounding uh call that kind of goes um which is uh yeah pretty pretty cool to hear you hear it a lot even though you never see uh see the bird so much and actually that more broadly is something that i find a little bit um it took me a while to get used to in okinawa was um i'm used to i guess the uk and ireland where maybe because as darren said maybe the ecosystems are more degraded but uh as a result like the birds are just out in the open and you can see them uh whereas mm-hmm. here the forest is really really dense and so i can hear a lot of the the interesting stuff but i can't really see anything i can pretty much just see trees um so yeah it's it's really cool to occasionally see these these cool birds that you can hear so often um yeah i'd say probably the ruddy kingfisher is one of my favorites wonderful thank you and darren yeah definitely for city species uh, i'm a big fan of white eyes in general they're disastrous group of birds so they're known as one of the great speciator lineages I think of vertebrates only um, chicklets are evolving faster, uh, which is great because they're just kind of, uh, they're this little, little usually yellowish, um, nondescript little birds, um, which is this supreme island colonizer, which has just gotten everywhere all across Africa and Asia into Oceania. Um, it just kind of by being really generous and giving things a go, you get to the smallest dot in the ocean and there's some white eyes there. And they've got this really quizzical little expression because they have a ring of um, white feathers around their eyes, which 
makes them look kind of perplexed permanently. <laughs> and uh, the in Indonesian, they're called burung kashmata, which is spectacled bird broadly. Uh, it looks like they're wearing little glasses the whole time. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I kind of like that. They're almost kind of like um, pigeons and doves, which are other supreme survivors and island colonizers. And that they always look a bit daft, but you're just like, wow, you're really, you're just incredibly successful group, which can survive everywhere. I'm always <laughs> looking slightly surprised to be there. Um, and then... <laughs> Uh, just uh, personally, then I've always had a soft spot for wolves. I've I've done very little work on mammals, but they're just a very cool species. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, so I'm gonna actually change my question. Uh, that I was gonna ask about favorite study site. Um, I want to know where you'd like to study in the future. Where's the site? Because you you know from a young age you were forward looking. You wanted to be the next Attenborough. Where's where's the spot where you do your nature documentary? And perhaps you can tie into the paper and talk about a place where you think the soundscape would be really cool to record as well. But mainly study site. I'll, I'll start with Sam. I guess I've always had the the completely unnecessary notion that I want to go to Antarctica um, <laughs> for no reason yeah. other than that, you know, it's pretty cool, isn't it? Um, Bucket list. Uh, that wasn't a pun. That honestly wasn't a pun. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, into I mean, thinking about the soundscape of Antarctica, I mean, you could there's there's all kinds of marine stuff you could capture, right? Like if you use uh, the kind of hydrophones, you could get really cool um, like narwhals and all kinds of stuff. Or maybe narwhals are in the north. I'm not I'm not going to pretend to know anything about narwhals. Um, all kinds of uh, whales and other things. Um, but yeah, I guess thinking about the kind of terrestrial soundscape in in antarctica you it's probably just a bunch of penguins um but yeah it could could be interesting yeah i don't mm-hmm. know in the summertime i mean i'm sure there'll be yeah, some yeah. colonizers as climate change yeah, yeah. marches on um but antarctica fantastic um darren yeah i think that just to go in the complete opposite direction from sam because i'm sufficiently cold in ireland so i don't need any more of that um i think the the amazon or any of the dry forests around it has always looked incredibly cool i've never done any work in the neotropics and i think that whole band of the world um is going to be so fascinating for biodiversity science in the next 100 years and so vital to the you know healthy functioning of of the planet i think there's going to be a lot of really fascinating work on you know secondary forest regrowth and um its relative value in terms of biodiversity and obviously carbon sinks and whatever and how how to promote restoration healthily and then how to balance agriculture and 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 in elements of biodiversity and all that's important everywhere but um it's just uh, happening at greater scale in the in the tropics um i've done a little bit of work like that in indonesia um well the sort of my collaborators have done all the real work and then i've just had the privilege of uh, uh getting to be involved but um yeah, I think somewhere in the neotropics, Brazil or Peru, anywhere there would be fascinating. Like all the all the bird groups are so different. Um, it would be a whole new world for me. I, I don't really know that much about it yet. So 
the that's kind of a dream yeah that sounds amazing i mean as ecologists are you able to unwind on holidays or do you just sort of sort of go to bali and just go oh my god the state of this and all these but you know is there i suppose the mind is always on but anyway that's that was just a thought that came into my head um We'll press on. Um, and just before we dive into the nitty gritty of the paper, uh, Sam has very kindly provided us a recording. So you will be listening to a soundscape of something. And then when we come back, Sam will be telling us a little bit about what we can hear in that recording. Uh, yeah, so that was a, a recording of a, uh, a clip from the daytime in one of our field sites here in Okinawa um, from the Yona Forest, which is in the uh, northernmost part of the island, which is a, a protected, uh, I think, I believe it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, so it's a protected forest. Uh, and so you can hear lots of um, birds, there's bulbuls, there's crows, there's the Japanese bush warbler, um, which kind of goes, it's the long kind of um, and then there's also you can hear a, a couple of woodpecker drums as well on, on trees uh, at some points during the recording as well. Uh, and then uh, beyond that, there's also insect noise. Um, I It's pretty difficult to tell different insects apart from each other um, in these large kind of choruses. Um, and there's like a fly or something that flies close to the recording at uh, the recorder at one stage. So you can hear a kind of buzzing as that goes mm -hmm. past. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty, pretty, I mean, as far as anything is a pristine forest, this is a pretty, pretty good one. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, so yeah, let's talk about bioacoustics and get get into, before we do that, can we just sort of break down the terms? What are we talking about when we're sort of talking about passive acoustic monitoring and what are the sort of questions that you are looking to address by using something like that? Um, you know, using a sense that is conventionally not something you know like i think darren said this is quite new it's a dynamic field not you know not something we've probably had access to any sort of decent recording equipment that's also accessible and relatively cheap i imagine these days um can we talk about what kinds of things we you know what what, what we can find out from listening to a forest like that sure so um I mean, basically what we're doing when we're recording and then interpreting the uh, sounds of natural ecosystems is we're eavesdropping on animal communication. So, you know, uh, 
loads of different animals, not everything, but loads of different animals have evolved to communicate uh, vocally uh, using sound. And so <clears throat> this uh, field of kind of bioacoustics and ecoacoustics just um, takes advantage of that uh, to try and get information on um, who is in the uh, ecosystem when and where, basically. So if, if you hear an individual making a, a vocalization, making a, a sound on a recording, it's telling you, you know, that is, you can, and, and you can identify that species, then you can say, okay, well, we have evidence that that species was in that place at that time. Mm -hmm. And so it's a useful um, kind of way of censusing uh, uh, ecosystems that way to get a sense of, of the biodiversity of the system. Wonderful. Thank you. I think it's, now we can just dive into the paper and talk about, you know, perhaps we can talk in plain terms about the quality <laughs> of the review paper um, and what it contributes to our understanding of how to address sort of fundamental ecological questions using acoustic monitoring. So um, shall I pass the ball to Darren and then we can do we can freestyle it, you know, after that. Yeah, sure. I think it was just uh, we kind of spotted a nice niche, I think. Both myself and Sam have quite fundamental interests, which we've sometimes applied, probably more in my end, to uh, applied uh, work. Uh, but I think we're always thinking in terms of more fundamental ecology or evolutionary aspects. And we just noticed that in ecoacoustics, there's been a huge, like the output of it these days is amazing. Uh, but a lot of the, particularly the reviews, are very targeted at methods or fairly applied usages. So I think we just came upon this by spitballing about uh, the the more baseline fundamental questions and how ecoacoustics and soundscapes bioacoustics could be used to to shine a light on a lot of these long-standing questions, which. Um, which have been difficult to answer just because you need a, uh, a scale of data, both in terms of time and space, which is really hard to collect in, in traditional ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, I mean, I think that's certainly how passive acoustic monitoring can help is that, so I don't know whether I said earlier, but passive acoustic monitoring is different from like going out with a targeted microphone so it's passive mm -hmm. because you kind of strap it onto a tree or something and then you leave it alone and it does kind of record autonomously and then you go back several months later and hope that nobody's nicked it um, <laughs> yeah, uh, my introduction to acoustics in my phd was active acoustic monitoring uh which was a lot of time tramping around islands pointing a microphone at birds like come on you sang a minute ago sing again i know you can do this yeah. Yeah. Um, Passive is yeah, more the, yeah, the idea is that if you're if you're leaving the microphone there, right, you're then there's not that kind of presence of the the researcher there to to affect the behavior of the animals. So, yeah, you can just kind of walk away and then eventually hope that the birds will start singing again. But yeah. Um, so passive acoustic monitoring is particularly um, useful to answer fundamental questions because uh, you can relatively easily, compared to traditional field techniques, get these kind of long time series or certainly high resolution time series. And you can um, uh, you can put 
multiple recorders out across like a, a landscape or you know wider uh, further afield than that and so you can get a really good kind of temporal and spatial coverage and so you can get vast amounts of data that can be used to get kind of biodiversity information out of it um, uh, and so it, it also records because it's passive uh, recording you can also record these species that are maybe very rare or difficult to record normally in kind of traditional surveys and you can capture um, other in environmental sounds like the sound of wind and rain and, and uh, other things like that and uh, also things like human disturbances you can hear I mean uh, Okinawa has a uh, uh, kind of quite a few active military sites. And so we quite often pick up like gunshots and things on recordings. Um, and so, yeah, we can we can hear all kinds of human disturbances as well as things like, you know, airplanes and, and traffic and, and things like that. Uh, uh, and yeah, also even um, like COVID effects, like there's lots of work now on um, what happened during the lockdowns to uh, kind of natural soundscapes when humans were not uh, as, abundantly kind of present in the soundscape so mm -hmm. so I, I wanted to know about the um obviously with the passive um how do you listen or listen to the data so how do you trawl through all of that sort of recording you know which can be i imagine days weeks maybe months do you look for sort of spikes or do you use even ai what's the, what's the method I mean, it depends on the specific question that you're trying to answer, but uh, in in like long term or or like big studies, yeah, it's, it's absolutely going to be impossible to listen to everything. So, for example, you know, the recordings we have in Okinawa, cumulatively, if you kind of were to listen to them back to back, it would take you more than 40 years, like constant. Uh, it's a very large amount of data. And so we can't sample like go through all those samples manually right so yeah there's all kinds of um ways that people are now doing that you can use these um what are called acoustic indices that are like a traditional kind of biodiversity index where you might summarize biodiversity in some way you can do the same with uh these recordings and, and turn them into like statistical summaries of the the um the distribution of sound energy basically uh, or you can use, yeah, kind of more complicated um, AI tools um, like convolu convolutional neural networks and things like that um, to try. And if you're trying to like classify different species or target particular sounds, you can use those to try and um, kind of flag up where sounds of interest might be and things like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And where's um, just so that, you know, any potential people who might be interested in conducting their own sort of acoustic monitoring study, um, you know, say in a forest, uh, mm. where's, where's, where's the ideal place to, um, to put it so that it's away from the bandits who might, who might nick it. And, but also, you know, do we want to be low to the forest floor? Do we want to be high up? I suppose it depends what you're studying, right? But um, are there any sort of rules around placement and, you know, presumably you don't want to face it towards a road or something, you know, I'm just as a lay person, what's what's the rules? I suppose, as you say, it depends on what you're looking at. And then in terms of something like a disturbance factor as a road, you well, like if depends on your question, but you probably do want to capture that as well as putting one in the center of the forest as well uh, mm -hmm. as a comparison point. And um, 
depends on your recorder, but like I think often it's just at accessible sort of shoulder height or, or lower um, to, um, I think there is certain parameterization techniques you can use to um, test the sound propagation in your individual spot, which I think we, we even mentioned in the paper that the archiving of these sort of metadata and and I think the standards are already being sort of developed and put in place, but a more consistent archiving of these sort of little aspects um, is is probably something which the field will um, make more standard going forward. Um, so I don't I think um, placement can vary, but as long as you record uh, exactly how you have and the, the acoustic environments that you're placing it within, then that's that's fine from as far as I would understand it. And then, yeah, you're just trying to capture the diversity of acoustic environments that is important for your question. So if you want all pristine forest, yeah, smack them right in the middle of, of your patches. Mm -hmm. But if you want to look at disturbance gradients in your roadside, further from the road, further from the road, um, or so on and so forth, uh, uh, do you have anything to throw in for that, Sam? No, I think you you covered that. Thanks. All right, wonderful. Um, so perhaps we could just wrap up this section of the podcast by um, talking about, obviously, with the review paper, you're synthesizing, you're looking at loads of different research papers and sort of coming to conclusions based on fair results. You're not sort of generating any new data yourself. So um, perhaps both of you could just give one really interesting key takeaway or key highlight, one one sort of morsel of information that you think if our listeners go away learning nothing else, this is this is the important thing to know about our review paper and why it's why it's important or why it's novel um, or why it advances the field. I'm probably going to steal Darren's thunder here because this really is the key, the single key take home, uh, which is just like, you know, acoustics has been around for a long time and people have been using it for kind of applied and conservation um, uh, kind of uh, sensing and things like this for a long time. But uh, increasingly because of the vast amounts of data that these uh, methods can uh, give us access to, uh, we can use it to answer all kinds of really interesting ecological questions, mm -hmm. uh, just fundamental basic ecological questions. And, and so, I mean, for me, particularly with an interest on like disturbance and, and stability, um, like some of the papers that are coming out now about like, you know, um, how uh, soundscapes respond to disturbances like fire or storms or all kinds of stuff. It's, it's like really, really fascinating. Yeah. Wonderful. And Darren, feel free to say if Sam's just stomped all over you. That's <laughs> classic Sam. He's just, just <laughs> down as usual. Uh, no, I, I think Sam has nailed the main take home. So I'm just going to say, like, for me, it's, it is it isn't the current main take home, but I am always excited that potential eco-evolutionary applications. So uh, I, I suppose a lot of my work could be uh, well, my earlier work more so, but I'm getting back into it now, sort of speciation, biogeography, and as well as its utility in 
showing where species as we currently understand and define them are distributed. And there's incredible potential for PAM to highlight under recorded biodiversity and species that we, we don't um, have a sound recording for to highlight where speciation barriers are. Uh, and, and sound is very important for this. So for instance, you have what you thought was a continuous bird population, but the signal changes at a certain break point, maybe over a mountain range or onto a new islands. And this is really important for things like birds, which use uh, song and sexual selection. So if they're singing differently, that indicates to you that maybe there's no gene flow. Um, so it could be really useful for highlighting uh, aspects like that. The scale of PAM will allow us to do that um, much quicker and at a larger scale. Like that's, I've done aspects of that work with hand recorders or things you can download from Zeno Canto, which is great, but uh, your coverage is only so good. And then you could even have really interesting if if this becomes more standard, these sort of recordings, uh, you, you there's there is the opportunity to catch really unique things like the there's famous um, study in the Galapagos where the grants have been studying finches for sixty years at this point I think and um, in with both genomic and trait data they can show speciation events pretty much happening because of new colonists to islands. Um, but no one's done anything like that with song and how signal uh, might change and how that could help speed up these splitting events. So if you let's say somewhere like islands would be a, a classic go-to for long-term ecological monitoring. If you have these sort of like standardized PAM sites uh, globally, uh, you could see how you could capture these really important signal shift events, uh, give us really insight into how even wild organisms can still potentially reproduce if they're not signaling in the same way that can they can just diverge more quickly uh at the moment that's still more pie in the sky but since sam sold a solid answer i thought i'd go for one which excites me uh personally uh, well that's actually fantastic because my my next question was going to be forward looking and talking about potential kind of breakthroughs and um, interesting applications that could come in the future but are not quite there yet um, I wanted you guys to get your um, your crystal ball out but maybe Darren you've addressed that um, Sam is there anything where you you know you look at passive acoustic monitoring and you think yeah this isn't quite where we're at but in the future this could really blow open the field and um, put it on the map you know I mean there's all kinds of really really interesting community ecology studies using acoustics now. I mean, um, uh, one of our co-authors, Cami Dejoncaire, has a paper on um, like sp building species distribution models based on kind of acoustics. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so that's kind of a very kind of spatial aspect. Uh, and we're doing some work right now on um, looking at kind of responses to a big typhoon in Okinawa. Uh, and, and looking at the kind of the temporal dynamics uh, across the island in response to that. So I think, yeah, a longer term for me, like that's something that I'm really interested in is this idea of kind of disturbance ecoacoustics and looking at, uh, you know, um, resilience and, and recovery. And actually, there are quite a few papers now on recovery. And I think we even have a section on recovery in the in the um, paper. Um, 
And so, yeah, there's there's a lot that can be done, I think, with trying to understand uh, yeah, global change uh, and uh, recovery dynamics and resilience and things at the kind of community level uh, using these uh, recordings because these recordings kind of inherently capture multiple different species and, and individuals, right? Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, once again, you guys are jumping the gun here. You're really, you're really coming out in front of all the questions that I'm about to ask you, uh, which was... Um, I always quite like to rudely and quite bluntly just say, why should I care? Because um, that's something that sort of came out of um, a policy discussion that we had at the Natural History Museum, where I think someone just put their hand up and was like, why should I care about any of this? And I thought it was really nice, um, nicely put, because, you know, as a layperson, um, sometimes bridging that gap between science and sort of action or, you know, policy or whatever, it's... It can be quite tricky, um, but I think you guys probably have done that really good, a, a good service. I think we can leave it at that. Uh, you know, I don't want to tread over ground we've already covered. So um, perhaps we can talk about the next recording that we're about to hear. We've we've had the day recording, so now we're going to listen to a night recording. Okay, yeah, so that was uh, the nighttime recording. So this was recorded at different field sites. So the, the first one, the daytime one, was from the kind of northernmost forest in Okinawa. This was actually from our university campus, uh, which is kind of in the middle of the island. Is it kind of forested, but a bit more open? And so uh, immediately you'll be able to hear it's a lot windier. And so that's because of the kind of structure of the forest. So um, in the in the forested north, the kind of canopy is much denser. And so there's less opportunity for kind of wind to rustle through the the forest, uh, whereas this this one uh, on the university site is is much more exposed to the elements, and so mm-hmm. you can hear the wind is much louder. Um, and then uh, there's uh, also some crickets chirping and other nighttime insects. You can hear a cl- kind of classic uh, insect choruses at night. And uh, in the lower frequency ranges as well, you can also hear a few frog calls, um, which are pretty, um, yeah, pretty common on campus. You can occasionally spot them, though they're very good at hiding. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for providing both of those. I wanted to ask actually about the two recordings. How did you select them? Did you did you trawl through a lot, or did you just go boom day, boom night? Let's take that and use that. Um, uh, there was a little of a little trawling through it was it was pr- i mean it was almost boom day boom night but um i kind of wanted a, a daytime recording that showed kind of as 
almost as diverse as the the soundscapes can be here and so i deliberately mm -hmm. chose one from the from the forested north uh, from the kind of yona forest um and then the nighttime sample um I think I wanted to I wanted to find frogs and I knew that I could reliably find them in um, in the on the oyster site. Uh, so, yeah, mm -hmm. we, I just chose something nearby. Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much. So, um, yeah, just as we come to sort of wrapping up this um, really wonderful podcast episode, uh, I'd like to ask Darren and Sam um, two bits of advice actually we'll do two because we've got both of you here um, and i think it would be interesting um so let's start with a piece of advice that a young budding ecologist sam and darren would have loved to have heard um as they were up and coming this could be all the way from when they were when you were kids when you were at school when you're at university but just young you what 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 really would have helped you to know at that time um you know, for other young ACRs that might be listening and any other advice that you might have for ecologists who want to perhaps branch out into acoustic monitoring, but might be scared either by the technology or, you know, the process of it. Um, so start with Darren, a piece of advice for young Darren. Uh, yeah, I think Broadly, yeah, just follow what's interesting because if you're trying to work on projects which seem sensible but are just not not that interesting to you, uh, is often just becomes miserable. If you mm -hmm. if you follow what you actually find interesting, you'll you'll usually make it worse. Uh, uh, make it sorry, make it work. Uh, and then uh, literature needs on field work because your your back's gonna be knackered in your thirties. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, and then for getting to passive acoustic monitoring, like um, I think Sam would be far more technically adept than me. Uh, but like I haven't found um, the acoustics particularly intimidating. It's once you get into, I think it's just package our packages are getting better every year, and there's more and more tools. There's a pretty active community which. Um, seems on the main really friendly. There's a Slack group for people to provide uh, inf information and assistance. Um, and yeah, the tools are getting ever cheaper, which is nice. Like you know, it's still not completely cheap, but um, sorry, it's very achievable. It's yeah. Once you, I think, have a clear idea of what you want to do with it, um, I think then it's very useful there is an instinct i think in some ways that when there's new tool just go wild with it and then think about the question afterwards but if you have a clear idea of your question then um and and you think this it's a tool that could help then yeah it's very it's relatively user-friendly and nice more limited experience so far sam can tell you all the horrible bits probably <laughs> right so yeah sam um so i think Probably something that I've actually um, I was kind of thinking about a lot a few years ago was kind of the diversity of different work that I do, I guess, following on from what Darren says, which is just kind of following your interests. And my interests are pretty broad and I think most people's are, to be honest. And so I, I kind of ended up doing a bit of this, a bit of that and, and kind of I have this kind of 
almost weird looking track record of, of work. And I was a little bit worried about it at one stage, but actually having spoken to people, uh, including uh, there was a there was a really good panel discussion at the um, BES macro one year um, that, that basically one of the questions was, you know, can I be a, a successful kind of generalist who does a bunch of different stuff? And the answer was, yeah, absolutely. You should just follow your, your interests. Uh, and so, yeah, just just like kind of, yeah, absolutely follow whatever is is interesting to you. And so, yeah, I guess advice to pass me would be, um, you know, don't don't uh, worry too much about um, kind of having some completely cogent, uh, overarching, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, kind of goal or whatever, because that that will emerge over time if you kind of um, connect the dots a bit. Um, and then I guess any other past advice for me, probably dress better. I was a pretty terrible dresser a few years ago. <laughs> um, and what was the other thing? Oh yeah, advice for getting into a, acoustics. So um, that would be, uh, yeah, it, it can be, overall I'd say it's not necessarily very intimidating, but um, they, it, there are parts of it that are quite technical and, and uh, I guess my advice would just be to collaborate with people who are already doing it. Um, because as Darren said, the community is very friendly. People are really like really great and really know what they're talking about. So, um, and yeah, I mean, I've found every time I've I've collaborated with with kind of acoustics people, I've I've had nothing but positive experiences. Um, and so yeah, I would say um, yeah, don't be afraid to kind of reach out to people. Say oh, you know, we're interested in doing this, but we don't really know exactly you know how to get this part solved or, or whatever and i think people are generally very friendly and very very helpful so i'd say just reach out to to someone wonderful thank you yeah well hopefully you will follow through on your advice i'm looking forward to darren's expose on wolves and uh <laughs> sam i've got this like I've got this sort of sad image of you of like the lost tapes from Antarctica, like these soundscapes that you've produced, but we've lost you to the Antarctic. Um, just sort of ghostly whale songs. Um, maybe don't do that. Um, yeah, just as we wrap up then, um, perhaps we can just finish with some sort of shout outs. You know, you talk about any supervisors, any sort of people that have helped you along the way, might be mum and dad, you know, anybody that you feel has played a core part in both this paper and just your journey, I suppose. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess the the first, the I mean, above anything else, I want to shout out our co-authors on the manuscript, because I, I know Darren will agree that this was, this paper was an absolute delight to write. Um, mm -hmm. I you know we uh, this this came from actually we had an organized session at the BES um one of the lockdown years when the the annual meeting was online uh, we did a we did a organized session there and then from that we kind of started talking about this uh paper and ev every single one of the the people who was involved in the in the um the session and then later some extra co-authors we invited were um, incredibly on the ball, friendly. These really are like the best of the best in the field. Like I'm, it, it was such an inspiring and and positive experience writing this paper. I was like, you know, we would 
sometimes you know you write a paper and you get the revisions like the the review of comments back and you you get a bit overwhelmed and it's oh mm-hmm. you know what you do now but every single person was like oh this is great you know let's meet and let's talk about it and we met uh, which was fairly grim considering the different time zones i think i was up about 3 a.m <laughs> or something but um yeah I, I mean it was still like a really you know everyone was really inspiring and really uh really great to work with so yeah i mean thanks to yeah all of our all of our collaborators on the on the paper that was a yeah it was a really really fun project to to work on um and then yeah from my end you know of course the um the okinawa environmental observation network and every everybody here who uh, is involved in the recording and, and archiving of the acoustic data that we use and particularly uh yeah nick friedman and evan economo who were kind of um, pivotal to setting up the acoustic part of the, the project in the uh, the early stages so yeah wonderful Thank you. And Darren? Yeah, I definitely echo what Sam said there. It was very inspiring working with our co-authors. There's like, it's nice to know that you can be a really high impact scientist and a good person uh, working <laughs> with uh, uh, our co-authors. You don't always see that, but uh, you, we saw it with this group, definitely. And there's a lot of people being like, well, I don't really know that much about such and such. And then they'd give you an incredibly insightful breakdown of it. Uh, what they just claimed to not the experts in. Um, but um, yeah, and then my, uh, you said, uh, mum and dad, my parents actually had a recorder set up in their garden for another collaborative project uh, that wow. myself and Sam have contributed recordings from. That was, they had a recorder in their garden for, I don't know, eight months or something and then didn't complain. So that was very nice of them. Uh, as well as, what were you know, looking to pick up? Sorry? What, what were you looking to pick up there? Oh, this is for the... COVID lockdown soundscapes, we had them up all over the place. Uh, and then we were a very, very small part of a global collaborative network. And uh, that will come out at some point. Some of our co-authors are leading that from our, our recent paper. So uh, there may be another podcast about that at some stage. Uh, led by <laughs> the people actually know what the, uh, that project's all about, <laughs> the leaders. But uh, yeah, no, that, and then my postdoc supervisor at the time, we were working on this paper. Um, it wasn't really directly linked to the postdoc, but Darren Evans in Newcastle University was an excellent supervisor and he was very happy for me to follow my interests and put time into interesting side projects. And uh, yeah, it was just really uh, that Newcastle research group, the network ecology group in, uh, that Darren leads is just brilliant for fomenting ideas or or um following interesting side projects uh, it was really great environment to work in wonderful thank you so um yeah as we wrap up i just want to say massive thanks to sam and darren for their time um links to the paper any sort of affiliated links anything perhaps where we can access some recordings or you know follow what you guys are up to social media all that kind of thing will be provided in the description of this podcast. So yeah, all that's left to say is thank you so much both. Thanks, Frank. Thanks very much.